How many of you guys, when you were growing up, um, there, was, there was something, and, and it might have been different in different seasons of your life, but there was something um, that you just had to have, something that was like the thing, right? Um, I, I know like throughout generations and throughout the years, it seems like it changes every couple years that there's something that's just like super cool. Um, I remember whenever I was in middle school, Oakley's were really, really cool. Right now, I, I realize um, that they still sell them, right? You can still go find Oakley sunglasses, right? But for some reason in middle school, they were like a really big deal to me and my friends at least, right? Um, and, and I remember that you could have like snowboarding version or there was like the baseball version and then there were these really weird, really weird ones, right? Um, but Oakley's were a big deal and they were, they were at least a big deal to, to my friends and I. But there was also this other industry around it that we called Jokely's or, or Folkley's, right? That there was this entire industry of fake Oakley's. You guys remember that? Like, like you could go just over the border into Mexico and apparently the rules are different over there about branding, right? And so you could come back with a box of Oakley's that weren't, right? But you might not know, right? You, you, they were maybe a good knockoff, but you wouldn't necessarily know. And I remember, um, I, sixth or seventh grade, I remember getting a pair of Oakley's from a buddy. They were used. And I think I paid him like $20 for them because back then, Oakley's were 100 bucks. 120, right? And I remember thinking, I got such a good deal. And then I thought, unless they were Jokely's, right? Like, these could have cost him $15 and he made money on me, or I got a really good deal. And to this day, I still don't know if those were real Oakley's or not. Now, this happens with other things too, right? Like, have you ever known somebody who shouldn't have a Rolex that has a Rolex? <laughs> and you're like, it says Rolex. I'm not sure you have what you think you have, right? What if I told you that uh, I think that the church may have been living with a knockoff version of the Christian life? Kind of like the, the Jokelys or the fake Rolex. Um, it looks and it feels like it's um, the Christian life that we're supposed to be living, and yet it might not be what it's supposed to be. What if, um, what if throughout history, somewhere along the line, we've been taught or we've been allowed to believe that the way that we're doing it is right, when in reality it's not? See, I'm, I'm worried. I'm worried about me. I'm worried that I might not be doing it right. So what if I told you that, that you were living with a knockoff Christian life? Now, real, real quick, I, I want to make sure that we're on the same page. I'm not saying that I think that you don't believe the right gospel. If you think, um, I, am, I am a wretched sinner who deserves God's wrath, and yet he was kind enough to pardon it because of Jesus Christ, then we're on the same page. You believe the right thing. But what we do with this Christian life, the way that we live it out, our attitude about it, what if I told you that you might have been living with a knockoff version of this Christian life. See, I'm worried, I'm worried that some of us might be, right? What if, I, what if I told you that you were doing it wrong? Would you wanna know? See, I'd wanna know, because for me, this is a big deal. This is a big part of who I am. But sometimes we don't wanna know, right? Sometimes knowing is actually really scary, because if we know, then we have to do something about it. 
or we might have to change, right? And so I'm asking you guys up front, if, if God challenges us today, are we on the same page, do we wanna know? Because for the next few minutes, I, I think that we're gonna come across some things in scripture that might make us a little bit uncomfortable with the way that we've been doing it. And just maybe, the Christian life that we've been living, that I've been living, and you, maybe you too, looks nothing like it's supposed to look. And so we're gonna be in Acts chapter four today. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to start turning there, but I wanna set the stage for Acts chapter four because the reality is that this, um, what we're gonna read is set in the context of a little bit bigger story. See, um, Peter and, and John are in this story, and if you don't know about Peter and John, they were like normal guys fishermen hanging out on a lake and one day Jesus was like follow me and their life changed but these normal guys got to experience incredible things they got to watch Jesus perform miracles and expose that he was the the Messiah come to save the world and then totally blew their minds whenever he died but he was resurrected and then, for a few weeks, he hung out with them after his resurrection, and then he's gone, and he leaves these guys that just a few years earlier were normal fishermen guys with this movement that we call the church. And in Acts chapter 3, the first miraculous thing that happens from the disciples is that Peter and John are walking into the temple, and I'm assuming that they do this every, every day, right? Because after Jesus left, they stayed in Jerusalem, and so the religious center in Jerusalem would have been the temple. Where else would you go to deal with this new religious system that you've got? So I'm sure they went to the temple every day, and they're walking into the temple, and, and they see this guy. And the Bible says that this guy sat at the gate, begging for alms, begging for help, because he was lame. And I don't mean lame like 2021 lame, right? Like, it's not like this guy was just the worst. <laughs> this guy was crippled. In fact, he was crippled from birth, right? So you've got this guy who's sitting at the gate to the temple, crippled, has never walked before. And he's, he's just hoping, would, would somebody notice me? Hey, could you spare a little change on your, no, okay. Hey, how about, no. And then Peter and John, they, they say, look at us. Now, imagine what he was feeling in that moment where they said, look at us. Because I don't know about you, but whenever I'm at Walmart and I get to the stop sign and there's that guy there, I don't look, right? Because if I look, if I make eye contact with him, then I'm emotionally responsible for this connection. I'm gonna have to give him something, right? I don't, I'm just honesty, right? Do you guys know that feeling? So imagine if you're on the other side of the glass, the other side of the windshield, how many people aren't looking at you? And Peter and John, they bend over and they go, look at us. And I'm sure in his mind he's like, I'm gonna eat today. Finally, somebody's paying attention to me. And then they go, we don't have any silver and gold. <laughs> and he goes, what? <laughs> Excuse me? We don't have silver or gold. But what we do have, we give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Get up and walk. And I imagine they reach down, they grab his hand, and like pull him up, and he jumps up. A miracle. This guy had never walked before, and suddenly he springs up off of his mat, and he can walk. And it says that he was leaping through the temple, and he was hanging on Peter and John. You can imagine. 
40 years, right? Have you guys ever seen one of those videos on, on Facebook or if you're younger, Instagram, and if you're really young, I don't even know what you guys use now. Um, one, of the, one of those videos where there's like a blind baby and then they, they like wrestle the, the, the glasses onto the baby and like strap it on and then it, it, it suddenly it's like, mom, right? Or, or it's deaf, or it's almost all the way deaf, and then they, they finally get the, the hearing aids in, and it's disoriented for a minute until dad talks. That's my dad, right? Those things make, I'm gonna cry right now. Those things make me cry, right? Imagine this guy, 40 years he hasn't been able to walk, and he jumps up in this miraculous moment. He's excited, right? And so he starts causing a commotion in the temple. Makes sense, right? But there's a lot of people in the temple, and so everybody starts noticing, hey, I know that guy. He's the one at the gate. I've walked past him for the last 30 years. Weren't you? You were just out there this morning. And there's this crowd that gathers, and Peter sees this opportunity with this crowd, and he preaches a sermon. I imagine he sees this crowd, and he jumps up on some high spot in the temple, and he says, hey, let me tell you something about what just happened. You see, Peter had just preached his first sermon just a few days earlier, and 3,000 people got saved. 3,000 people came to know Jesus because he had just preached a sermon. And he sees this opportunity, and he preaches again, his second sermon. And he gives an incredibly hard and clear gospel message. He says to them, he looks them in the eye, this crowd, and he goes, you guys missed it. The Messiah came, and you killed him. But God would pardon you if you would repent and turn to him. And you don't have to live with that guilt. You could have freedom. You know what he didn't say? He didn't say, oh, you think that was cool? Somebody get me a leper, right? He wasn't like, let's keep this miracle train going here because you guys are entertained. I I would love to have a bigger crowd. No, he saw that opportunity for a gospel message. How bold was that? To be in the temple where they don't, they don't believe in Jesus in the temple and to preach that message. Now, that's where we pick up the story in Acts chapter four, verse one. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. So it was 3,000, 2,000 more people, men, probably a whole lot more if you're counting everybody, believe. 2,000 people get saved in this moment, and at the exact same time, Peter and John are getting arrested. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that like right now, the sheriff bursts through that door. Like, Jason Marsh! Everybody turns around. They come running up here, and, and they handcuff me, and they walk me out the back door. Your first thought would probably be like, he probably didn't pay his registration again on his car. Like, what did he do? Right, your first thought would be, oh my gosh, what, what did he do wrong? It wouldn't be, I want some of that. What is he doing right in his life? (laughs) Right? But in this moment where Peter and John are literally being perp-walked off of the scene, they're like, you should believe in Jesus right now. 
and 2,000 people accept the call. I want you to notice that there are two responses here. There are those that believed, a lot of people that believed, and there were those that were offended. Jesus will always be offensive. See, and I think we have a problem in the American church. We bend over backwards to try to make Jesus less offensive. We really like half-truths, don't we? We really like polished-up versions of the things that we believe because we know that the world around us is offended by some of the things that we believe, right? And so we focus on the love part of Jesus. There is nothing wrong with how much God loves you and communicating that to people, but we really lean into that, don't we? But we also like to shy away from things that, that make the world around us cringe, right? We shy away from moral absolutes that God says, this is how I've ordered the world and this is how I expect you to live in it. And especially if it's a hot button issue that our culture has a hard time with, like homosexuality or like marriage and divorce and what those look like in the church or what God thinks about abortion a lot of times we just sort of hide those things in the corner and try not to talk about them or try to maybe adjust the way that they feel when they're coming out of our mouth because we feel like we need to do something to make Jesus less offensive. Does Jesus need a makeover to look good? The question is a trick. Jesus doesn't need to look good because he is good. It's not our job to make him look good. But can I be honest, as a pastor, I get paid for this. I want to do this. I find myself wanting to do this, right? I find myself wanting to make Jesus more palatable to people because I know that there are some things that they're not going to like. You know why I do that? Because I want to be more comfortable. Quite frankly, Right? And I think that the church as a whole, maybe not this one per se, but all of us, the church, has gotten pretty good at finding ways to be comfortable, and we're pretty bad at staying uncomfortable. We're trying to make it easy to come to Jesus by stripping away all of the offensive stuff, but the gospel is offensive. Did you notice in this message here, Peter didn't lean into all the moral absolutes. He didn't all he talked about was the fact that you guys did something wrong. God is mad at you, but he would pardon you and forgive you. That is offensive. For some people, just to hear that I need God's grace is offensive. And for other people, it's freedom. For the 2,000 people that heard this and believed, that was freedom. That was, that was medicine to their soul. But there were people there who heard the exact same message and were offended because Jesus will always be offensive. There will always be people who oppose Christianity. Let's keep going. Verse 5. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. And so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? So they spent a night in jail. And then imagine this scene. 
I think for us, we just read this and there's just more, character, more Bible characters in the room. Every important person, every political office and agency was represented in this room. But in, in Israel, it wasn't just political, it was also their religious system, both at once. And so the most important people in Israel were in this room. I want you to think about what that might look like here now. Imagine you're sitting in front of the Supreme Court, but that day they made extra room for the president and his cabinet members and some high-ranking senators. And they're all looking at you and they're like, what did you do? Explain this to me. Imagine that scene. How foreign that actually is to the life that we live as Christians. This was the beginning of real persecution in the book of Acts jail and being threatened and being brought before people like this to answer for their message and for what they had done. Imagine how uncomfortable Peter and John were in that moment. Would you be uncomfortable? I'd be terrified. I'd probably pee myself. That's, that's, a, that's so much more scary than I think we give it credit for when we read it. And the reality is in our life, I think that we freak out over even the slightest opposition. Right? When, even when things just sort of go wrong in our life, we complain about it, and we, we pout, and we doubt God's care for us in those moments. Because I, I, I think, we might not say it this way, but I think that a lot of us live with this idea that there's this Christian formula. And you might say things like, man, I, I love that new worship song. In fact, I, I love worship. When I go to church, that connection that I have with God, that is it for me. Or I've really experienced freedom from my, my habits and my addictions now that I'm following Jesus the way that I, I'm supposed to be, right? Or, or my pastor told me the other day that he was impressed with how worn and loved my Bible is. But now my, my teenager won't look me in the eyes and just ignores me all day long. Or the car that I just bought, it broke down. Or I just found out that all of my coworkers went behind my back and complained to my boss about me. God, you and I, we're, we're like this, right? Like, I am all in. I love you, and I love this worship stuff. Fix it. Right? We feel like, um, God, because I'm so, I'm in the right place with you. My heart's in the right place. I love you. Fix my life. Would you, would you, like, make it so the car bill is small, <laughs> right? Um, would, would you convince my boss that those guys are idiots? Would, would, would you tell my teenager that he's a fool and, you know, he needs to come back? Because I'm so invested in this, God, you need to fix this for me. Let's keep going in this story and see if that's how these guys are. Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified. But God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. Think about the boldness, not just to be in this room and not crumble, but when they ask, what are you guys doing? How did you heal this guy? 
Instead of just going, well, it was Jesus. It was like, no, you guys remember Jesus, right? You killed him? It was his name. It's all I needed was his name to bring this man up to his feet. He was so convinced. Imagine Peter and John being so convinced that they could stand in that room and say those things. You killed him. Imagine the tenacity to stand before the Supreme Court and the president and point fingers. And then verse 11, because he keeps going. (laughs) Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Peter is punching where it hurts here, and we might not catch it if you don't think about the scenario. These guys aren't just political, but they're religious leaders, scholars of what we would consider the Old Testament, and they know who Jesus is, but that may not mean much to them because as far as they're concerned, he was wrong, right? But Peter quotes Psalm 118 here, but he changes a word. See, Psalm 118, verse 22 says, the builders rejected, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he says, you guys know that psalm? You're the builders. He uses their scriptures to point out that they're the bad guys. Boldness. But he follows that boldness with such a clear statement. The system that you guys have is broken and won't work. There is no other way to be saved except through Jesus Christ which is offered to everybody in this courtroom. Even in that moment, standing in front of those people, he sees an opportunity for the gospel to go out. Even then, even when he's saying, you guys killed him, but you need him too. Salvation's on the table, but it's only in Jesus Christ. They will find any and all opportunities for the gospel, even when it's uncomfortable. I can't imagine Peter and John were comfortable. And I don't know if I'd be that bold. I think I might have just taken my lashes and and left. Lived to to see another day. Convincing myself that, that I'll get to talk about Jesus next time because I made it through this. And then down in in verse 18, we're going to pick it back up because what happens is they kick Peter and John out because they got to figure out what they're going to do with him. They bring him back in, verse 18. They called him in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we can't help speaking about what we've seen and heard. See, Peter, Peter and John in this moment, they realize that there are two opposing forces or voices. There's what you guys think is right. And there's what God says is right. And listen, you guys decide if we're in trouble. You be the judge. If we're in trouble for this, that's up to you. Make the call. But we're going to do what God says is right. And that's still true today that there are two opposing voices in our life. Isn't that true? 
That there are, there are forces pulling us in different directions. There's God calling us to, to live a certain way, to live a godly life, to lean into his kingdom. And then there's a world around us that would say, no, nah, you should do it this way. In fact, the stuff that, that you've been taught in church, that's really not right. And if you would take this part off and take that part off, and then maybe we'd be on the same page and you just keep it quiet and it could be personal. Two different forces, two different voices telling us what's right. And Peter and John say, Man, I, I might get in trouble for this, but I'm going to do what God says. And then they get released. And they go back to their people with this threat. Don't ever speak in Jesus' name again. And, and, and we read that and we think they might just went skipping out of the courtroom like, whoo, got away with one. That was not an idle threat. We're going to learn in just the next few chapters how serious this threat is. But you guys have to remember, Peter and John, they were, they were there. John was there when Jesus was crucified. When these same people said, we're going to kill you, they meant it. They could do it. It wasn't an idle threat. But they get released, and they go back to their people and I want you to imagine that moment for just a second when they walk through the door and, and Peter and John walk in after, after all of this and they're like, what happened? Oh, you guys, we got, we got arrested. Yeah, well, we saw you getting walked out. Like, what happened after that? Well, we spent a night in jail. And, and then, then they question us. Wasn't that scary? It was scary. Well, let's pray. And we pick it up in Acts chapter 4, verse 24. When they heard this, the people that they came home to, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And this is the part that I care about. This is, I've been trying to get us here, so pay attention to this prayer. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. They begin their prayer in this moment by addressing the sovereign Lord. And, and um, in, in the New Testament, over and over, the word Lord uh, is, is this Greek word kurios, which, which means uh, master. And often that is the word that's used. Master, it, the problem with master is the, the, the master could say, you are going to close that window over there. He could say that. He has the authority. He has the authority to back it up, and you could be in trouble if you don't do it. But he is dependent on your obedience for it to actually happen. And that's the word that's used pretty often for, for Lord in the New Testament, but not here. This word, sovereign, the reason that they've translated it sovereign Lord is because it's communicating the, the sovereign God who spoke light into existence three days before he spoke the sun that would give light into existence. Just because he said so, it happened. Sovereign Lord. The nations all throughout history have tried to, they, they've tried to, to foil your plans and do their own thing, and it's all been in vain because you're the sovereign God. Verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. 
See, I don't know if you know this or not, Herod and Pontius Pilate didn't get along. They were not friendly. And Gentiles and Israelites really didn't get along. And yet, you get Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Romans and the, the Jewish leaders all got together to conspire against Jesus and they end up accomplishing God's will. Thinking that they are working their own plans out, they accomplish what he wants. And then we get to the, the part that I think is so profound. Verse 29. Now, Lord... Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your words with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Compare this to our prayers for a minute. Think about the way you pray, and then think about this. You, did you, what did they just get in trouble for? They just got in trouble for healing a guy with the Holy Spirit's power, and then using that moment to boldly proclaim Jesus Christ. And they went to jail. They were in trouble in a courtroom. They got their lives threatened. And there's one brief mention of the threat right at the beginning. Consider their threats. It's like, God, you're paying attention, right? You see what's going on? That's it. And then two requests for literally the exact same thing that got them in trouble. God, we got in trouble for healing and, and being bold. Would you give us boldness and the chance to heal again? Compare that to our prayers, because I, I think we would see this situation and we'd be like, all right, God, um, that was a rough 24 hours. Um, Team Jesus over here really needs you to get them. Right? Would you, would you just like, I don't know, heart attacks or something, like change their hearts. If they're not going to change, fix them. Save me from this environment. Protect me. Protect my kids from the world around them, the school system. We would be like, um, God, we're doing great things for you. It's time for you to fix this. See, ultimately, the problem is that we live like, if I do this Christian life well, I'll be comfortable. Now, you might not say that, and, and really where your mind goes is not what I'm accusing you of. I'm not saying that, that you believe that, oh, now that I'm on Team Jesus, I'm due to win the lottery, right? We all know that's not going to happen, and yet... We pray as if we deserve to be comfortable because we're often praying to take away the uncomfortable in our lives, aren't we? Would, God, would you save me from hurt? Would you hurt the people that hurt me? Would you make this situation go away or get better? Would you transform this because it is so uncomfortable for me? See, here's a problem. When I read the Gospels, I don't get the impression Jesus was comfortable. If you think about it, didn't he say, um, hey, come follow me. I don't have a place to put my head, though. <laughs> right? Like every night I lay down somewhere different. I don't know, I borrow somebody's room. I'm sleeping under a bush. I don't think Jesus had a comfortable life. It, he certainly didn't have a comfortable end. Beaten, a crown of thorns, nailed to a cross. 
And you know, if we were to read forward in the book of Acts, I don't get the impression that the disciples got to be comfortable either. Did you know, um, so, so Judas hanged himself, right? The 11 disciples that were left, out of those 11, 10 of them died martyrs' deaths. And the only one that didn't was John because they boiled him in oil and it didn't work. Not comfortable. And yet my prayer life demands that God give me a better life than his son and the disciples. The things that I pray for look a lot like, God, I really want you to make... I want you to make it so it's easy for me. I want you to take these obstacles out of my way. But God didn't do that for Jesus or the disciples. That wasn't even part of the deal. See, the things that I pray for betray the kingdom where my heart is actually set. Mine. And see, that's not the case with these guys. See, this, this prayer, it, it makes me think of, I don't, do you like MMA? Like the UFC fighting, okay? Jason at lifegj.org, if you don't, okay? <laughs> um, I, like, I like watching the fights, and it's, and it's not because it's gruesome, it's because of the mentality. It's because those guys could get punched and beaten and hurt and they're bloodied and then the bell rings and they go back to their corners and it may be, maybe like boxing, same thing. They go back to their corners at the end of the round and they should be done. And yet, what do they do in their corner? What do I need to know to get back out there? Is there something I need to do just a little bit differently? Send me back out there with the tools so I can keep fighting. That's what this prayer looks like to me. These guys got thrown in jail and accused and threatened, and they're like, all right, God, um, what do I got to do to get me back out there? Would you help me be even more bold? Would you give me even more miracles to perform? I can't wait to get back out. Yeah, but you got arrested. Yeah, but 2,000 people came to know Jesus. See, and, and I look around at, at my life. I don't know about you. And I don't see this kind of boldness, this kind of kingdom energy in times that are hard, in times that are uncomfortable, when I'm suffering. I see, I don't know about you, I see uh, weak, anemic, bored, boring Christians. Not right now. <laughs> Maybe right now. Why? Why do we get like that? Because we're comfortable. Because we've trained ourselves to look for the comfortable in life. And listen, I realize not everybody's life is comfortable. Some of you guys are going through seasons where it's incredibly hard, and you'd say, that's not me. I'm not comfortable. But are you praying to become more comfortable? Is that a mindset that, that if I just do this right, eventually I'm going to get to this point where I can take a deep breath and whew, I'll be okay? Are you chasing comfort? See, I think that we've been convinced that if we do this Christian life li right, that we end up with the good life. And one of the highest values, one of the, the, the target on the wall, maybe even the way we make decisions is whether or not I'm comfortable in it. Um, maybe you're a high schooler and you feel like God is saying, I need you to go um, uh, into the library. There's a kid in there who I think I, I, I need you to talk to. And you're like, well, I don't, I don't talk to other people. I don't know about Jesus. 
I'll do that when I grow up. And then you're 40 years old and you're at the same library and God's like, hey, that kid over there, you need to talk to him about Jesus. And you're like, no. Right? We, we, we decide how we're doing things based on how comfortable we are in them. And there's two reasons being comfortable is a problem. And the first is this. When you're comfortable, you're ineffective. Satan would love nothing more than for you to be comfortable. In fact, he's done a pretty good job, right? Look around at the American church and think, how much does, does Satan need to work against us when we're just so happy and content with our life that we're really not pushing into any kingdom stuff? Because when we choose comfort over kingdom, we're really ineffective. We choose to escape opposition in our life and persecution hasn't even come yet, right? We don't even know what it's like to live hard for Jesus, and yet we're really good at escaping all of the hard things in our life and uncomfortable situations. And, and when, when Peter and John healed and preached, and they also led 2,000 people to Jesus in that moment. But they got arrested. Certainly that was horribly uncomfortable, but it was exactly where God wanted them, in the uncomfortable. Imagine if they walked past this guy and were like, oh, that makes me uncomfortable. Keep walking, right? Or what if after they healed him, they're like, shut up, dude, we don't need attention. I'm uncomfortable with a crowd. But that was exactly where God wanted them, in the uncomfortable. And look at the impact it made. See, I think for us, God wants us in uncomfortable places. Not always, but he's not afraid of them like we are. Sometimes when we're in an uncomfortable spot, it is when we are most successful, when we are most satisfied in our role in the kingdom and where we make the biggest impact. The problem is when we're chasing comfort, we're running away from being effective. That's one. And then another reason why being comfortable is a problem is that when you're comfortable, you're in danger. So there's this, um, there's this video that I watched with this guy. They called him Pastor X. They like blurred out his face and changed his, his voice because he's um, working in the Iranian church. Imagine what church might be like in Iran or other parts of the world, right? And so they're interviewing him and, and he talks about his wife. And, he, and he, he's American. He brought his wife who's Iranian over here and, and was hoping to like give her a good life. And after a while she was depressed and she wanted to go back home. And he's like, why? I've given you a good life. And she's like, I feel like I'm just, like Satan has lulled me to sleep here. What if there is a lullaby that we're all experiencing that we are basically asleep in our faith. We're so comfortable. But there's a day coming, I think probably sooner than later, where I'm not sure we're going to get to be comfortable. I don't know if you've noticed, I feel like our, our world, our country is changing quickly, like more quickly than I thought it was going to happen, right? I imagined a slow slide, and then I feel like we've gotten at the water park, and you got on the wrong slide, <laughs> There was a time not that long ago where um, it was normal to be Christian. 
And then, and then it was at least an acceptable option in society. And, and now I think we're at this point where it's kind of offensive to most of, of our society. Christians are, are bigoted and small-minded and they're going the wrong direction. Um, that was, that was a, a previous generation. We need to progress, right? How much longer is it going to be before it's socially punishable and legally punishable to follow God? I'm not sure we have very much longer where we have the choice to be comfortable, and yet we're not training the right muscles. Are we going to be ready, or are we going to be in danger because we're comfortable? See, my great fear is that we would choose comfort when that day comes. That we would bend to, to, to the culture around us. For me, but also for you, my fear is that you would choose comfort. And we wouldn't be doing a very good job as a church and as a pastor if I don't say to you, we need to start flexing these muscles. We need to start finding ways to be uncomfortable for the kingdom and not putting comfort over the kingdom. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite my friend Jared to come up um, and I'm going to ask you guys some questions. What if our church, what if you, what if I, put kingdom over comfort? What if you prayed prayers like this, where you said, God, you know exactly what's going on in my life, right? Get me back out there. Send me back into the fire. What do I need? I don't need to be comfortable. What tools do I need? Do I need your Holy Spirit in this moment? Would you give me that? Would you make me bold to proclaim the gospel truth to people in the world around me? And not everybody's going to like it, God. Would you help me to be okay with that? And you'd say, yeah, but Pastor Jason, I'm, I'm not a bold person. I know people like that. That's not me. Or my spiritual gift isn't evangelism. So if you've ever taken a spiritual gifts test, you do not get to weaponize that. <laughs> you might not be an evangelist by gifting, but you are one by calling. Don't you think that if you asked for boldness, that he would make you bold? Don't you think that if you asked for an opportunity to share the gospel with people, they'd give you the opportunity? Some of us are like, well, I, I don't even know who I run into on a regular basis. I'm a recluse, or I've got this bubble of friends. Pray for that. Don't you think he'd put you in those moments? What if you, if you asked for the Holy Spirit's power, and you're like, God, I want to make an impact. If you want to do miracles through me, do miracles through me. If you, want to, if you want to change this person's life because I prayed for them, let's bring that on. I'm okay with the uncomfortable if it means your kingdom gets better. What if that's the way we prayed? What if you decided to put kingdom over comfort in your life? And it doesn't mean that God doesn't care about you being comfortable ever. The Bible is full of things that are, are true about the way that God wired the world and that when we lean into those things, we do enjoy a better life, but that's not the goal. That's not what we're chasing. We're chasing the kingdom. And if we get to be comfortable, cool. And if we ever have to choose between the two, what if we chose kingdom? What if that became normal for us? What if we flexed those muscles? You'd be more effective, I tell you that.
I'd be more effective. You'd be more satisfied. I know that seems counterintuitive because it seems like we're constantly chasing satisfaction. That's why we're after comfortable. That's why we need our life to be better. But God wired you different and you would be the most satisfied and on fire and alive if you put the kingdom first. And you'd be ready. You'd be ready when it, when it comes because there's a day coming when you're not going to have a choice. Well, you'll have a choice but you're going to be forced into it. You'd be ready to put kingdom over, over comfort. We start now. And so what I want to do, we're not going to sing a song. Um, I want to spend a moment right here, right now, and begin to put this into practice. Um, and it's going to look different for each one of us. But, but while Jared plays and we're going to dim the lights, um, I want to have a moment where you examine yourself, where we just sit with this and we say, God, is this me? I dare you to ask that prayer. I dare you to ask God, is this me? And if it's you, what if we repent in this moment and we say, God, I've, I've, my prayers expose me that I chase comfortable. I love you. I'm all in for you. But it, it seems like I've been holding something back because I kind of expect the good life. I'm sorry. And what if we all just sat here and prayed this prayer? Lord, would you send me out to be bold with your words? Give me boldness. Give me opportunity. Empower me with your spirit to make a difference. Let's do that. We're just a few minutes here. And for you, that might mean uh, you're on your knees on the floor. You're welcome to get up and go to the corners. You can sit where you are quietly, huddle up as a family, however you want to do it. Let's just spend a few moments wrestling with this. So last night while I was sitting there praying, I, I, something came out of my mouth. It was, a, it was a prayer, but I feel like it was inspired uh, prayer where I told God, I think my problem is that I just don't trust you. That like, I trust you with a lot of stuff, but there's a point where that trust ends and I need to manage something to, to make sure I'm okay. And maybe that's you. Maybe you've been wrestling with how much you can trust God. If... If how you understand trusting him and comfort are wrapped up together, then you're going to end up with a problem in the first place. But if trusting him has to do with his goodness, then he's trustworthy. He might make you uncomfortable, and he'll still be good. It'd be good for him, it'd be good for his kingdom, and it'd be good for you. And then something else happened last night after service that I want to just speak to real quick. If you feel like God has been prompting you to do something in your life, has God been talking to you and your answer to that is, I'm uncomfortable? This may be God saying, do it anyways. Right now, get started. If that's you in the room, I just want you to hear, God's not concerned about your comfort. He wants you to be concerned about his kingdom. Let me pray over you guys real quick and then we can go. Heavenly Father, thank you um, that you give us stories like this where we see the obedience of your people. And I don't know how over the thousands of years we have gotten so far off track that instead of running into the fire, we try to stay away from the flames. Help us to be people that put your kingdom first. Give us boldness. Give us your spirit's power. Let's make an impact. 
And Lord, we are so thankful for the prompting of your spirit in our life. And I pray for everybody here that if they are hearing from you, that you would give them the boldness to step into it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, church. The church may leave the building, but not to go be comfortable. If you need to stick around for prayer, we'll have some of our prayer team hanging out up here around the front. They would love to pray with you. Have a great week.